You can find tonight's reading on page 1184 of the Church Bibles, and we're reading from Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So I'm going to pray for MJ. So MJ, do come and join me before you speak. And um, yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds to listen. Give us energy and attention. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would burn within us. We pray that you powerfully speak through MJ, by your spirit, through your word. And we pray that you change us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jack. Well, it's lovely to be with you all. I don't often get to make it to the evening service because I'm looking after little ones. So it's really fun to be with you all. Lots of people I love very much. So it's great. Well, something that goes hand-in-hand with a life-saving station is a lighthouse. Um, Usually you'll find the two in exactly the same place. So you have a life-saving station which sends the boats out into the water to rescue the people who might be drowning out in the sea, bringing them back to the safety of the shore. And next to that, you'll have the lighthouse, which acts as a beacon, shining out its light, warning ships from getting too close to the shore, warning them to stay, stay far off. Now we're in the middle of downtown Detroit now, and for some reason there is a lighthouse on the riverwalk, on the riverbank, and it begs the question, what on earth is this lighthouse doing smack bang in the middle of downtown Detroit? Well, this lighthouse is actually a replica of another lighthouse that was built in 1876, a few hours drive away on the Great Lake Huron in Michigan. And that lighthouse had for over 100 years been shining out some 60 miles over the Great Lake to warn the ships and boats from getting too close to shore. And what they did was they made a replica, a smaller version, in downtown Detroit, and they put it on this riverwalk. Now, it's, it's crazy because this lighthouse looks really good. It looks like a functional lighthouse, but here's the problem. It doesn't produce any light. It doesn't save anyone's life. It just looks good. And Jesus said to his followers, and he says to us today, if we follow him, he said these words, you are the light of the world. It's a statement of fact. It's not something that you can drum up, Jesus says. It's not some days you feel a bit shinier than others. He says, you are the light of the world. And do you remember who he says it to? He says it to his uneducated, often failing, often bickering disciples who end up, remember, deserting him and rejecting him. And he makes this extraordinary statement. You are the light of the world. It's this new reality that they have as born-again believers. But then Jesus goes on and he says something quite extraordinary 
after he tells them that you're the light of the world, he says something that it's possible, as ludicrous as it sounds, to not let anyone see the light of Christ in you. This is what he says in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A town or city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, Jesus goes on, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Now, the fact that Jesus says, let your light shine presupposes that some lights don't. That is really shocking, isn't it? In other words, you can have all the hallmarks of being a Christian. You can look like a pretty functional lighthouse. We've been looking at the last three weeks in Colossians, haven't we? The marks of being a Christian. Church as God intends. Week one, do you remember? Reconciled with Christ. What it means to be a Christian? We're forgiven. You can be forgiven and believing and trusting in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That he died in your place, on your behalf, to bring you back to God. You can believe that, week one. You can believe, week two, that you've got the marks of maturity. Be growing in faith. Week three, we looked at last week. You can be committed to the body of Christ, enjoying unity, loving and serving one another. But the question is, does anyone know about it? Does anyone know about it? Outside of these four walls, who can see the light of Christ in you? Have you hidden your light under a bowl? Are you a lighthouse with no light? Or, and this is quite a vulnerable position to be in, quite precarious, have you put your light on a stand for everyone to see? And a lighthouse The light of a lighthouse has two qualities. It's both comforting and reassuring, but it's also warning. And like any light, some people are going to be drawn to the light of Christ in you. And others are going to want to keep their distance or might be quite offended. And so this week, what we're looking at is our outward devotion And the question I want us to ask today, and I want to frame our passage today as we look at, is how can we let our light shine for the world to see? How can we let our light shine? Not just look like a good functional lighthouse, but how can we let our light actually shine? Now, before we start thinking, oh, here we go, I'm going to have some uh, evangelistic program I've got to sign up for, I would recommend you come along to our series on sharing your faith in October, November. Or before we start thinking about how we're going to drop the J-bomb into conversations this week, there is something that God is more interested in. And I wonder if you spotted it at, uh, Paul mentions it three times in these four verses. And this creates the first framework for our passage. Paul mentions something three times that is at the heart of what it means to be church. I wonder if you notice it. Shout it out if you hear, if you see it. Pray. Prayer, pray. Look at verse 3. Devote yourselves to prayer. Verse 3. And, sorry, it's verse 2. And verse 3. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. Verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. 
Now, if you are the sort of person who likes to make notes, we've got two sections to this. It neatly falls into verses 2 to 4 and then verses 5 and 6. And verses 2 to 4 neatly fit under this heading of how do we let our light shine so the world can see? We speak to God about people. So we speak to people. Sorry, I'm giving away the second heading. We speak to God about people. Now, let's look at the language that Paul uses to describe this prayer, because it's something we go, yeah, yeah, okay, I know that, I know that one. What does he say? Verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. This language of devotion, another translation is continue steadfastly, persevere. I did a little bit of research into the Greek, and the word proskatero literally means to be steadfastly attentive to, to give unremitting care to a thing, to persevere and not faint. And it's used 10 times, this word, in the New Testament. And six of those times, it's used in the book of Acts, which actually shouldn't surprise us because it's a mark of the early church, isn't it? This language of devotion, of commitment. And so speaking of the disciples, after Jesus was taken up into heaven and before the Holy Spirit came on them at Pentecost, we read this, Acts 1, 14, They all joined together, here it is, proskatero, constantly in prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And then a few verses later, Acts 2.46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. It's very evocative, this language of devotion, isn't it? There's there's real desire behind it. There's a wholeheartedness, a a commitment there. And before we start thinking it's an activity that we've got to sign up for, that I would recommend you put in your diary all the prayer meetings that we've got lined up. They're merely opportunities for us to adopt a posture before the Lord. See, prayer is what we do when we behold the living God. As we behold him, we become like him. Whatever you behold, whatever you spend your time looking at, you become like. Hear these sober words from Dick Lucas, who wrote a great commentary on this um, book, on this letter. He says this, It is in a prayerless church that the enemy can best do his work of disruption. It is in a prayerless church that the enemy can best do his work of disruption. And notice it's not something that we do on our own. It's a collective command, isn't it? Devote yourselves, Paul says. Devote yourselves to prayer. We need one another. And the Lord Jesus himself, he knew how difficult we find it to pray. And look at the two ways that our prayer life should be characterized. Just look at verse 2 with me. Devote yourselves to prayer. Here are the two characteristics. It's to have being watchful and thankful. Now, I wonder what that reminds you of, that term watchful. What does a watchful prayer look like? Well, I'm reminded of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember the night that he was arrested and then betrayed and put on trial? What does he say to his disciples? Watch and pray. And three times they fall asleep, don't they? So quite literally, he wants them to stay awake with him. But why does he say that? Well, the next verse in Matthew 26 says, watch and pray. Why? So that you will not fall into temptation. There's a spiritual battle going on, my friends. And we are called to stay spiritually alert. 
But sometimes also requires some self-discipline, doesn't it, to even stay awake when we pray. I was comforted to hear that um, Pope Francis struggles sometimes staying awake when he prays. And the Archbishop of Canterbury also says that he finds a great antidote to falling asleep when you're praying is to do the ironing while you pray. Apparently, I didn't do any ironing, so maybe I should take it up. That, that really helps. But listen to this. Devotion can quickly, if we're not careful, devotion to anything, and I'm, I'm the sort of person who is an all-in kind of person. You know, when I go sugar-free, I'm completely sugar-free. I'm not like, I drank a bit of elderflower and actually spat it out before I swallowed it because I thought, oh, I thought it was water this morning. Um, and so devotion can quickly, if we're not careful, it can quickly become a slave driver And we have to be careful of that. However, often, sometimes, spiritual disciplines require effort and sacrifice. Now, one of my great heroes of the faith um, is a chap called Charles Simeon, who was a great preacher in the 18th century in Cambridge. And I used to go to his, I mean, a couple centuries later, went to his church while I was a student. And he used to find it incredibly difficult to get up early to read the Bible and to pray, as we often do. Uh, especially in the winter months. And so what he did was, that if he overslept, he would pay a fine of half a crown to his bedmaker, who was his kind of college servant at the time. He was a, a, t- a, a professor in one of the Cambridge colleges. And so a few days later, as he lay comfortably in his warm bed in college, he reflected that the good woman was poor and could probably do with half a crown. So, to overcome such rationalization, he vowed that next time he would throw a guinea into the river. And the story goes that this he duly did, but only once, because guineas were scarce. And as his biographer writes, he could not afford to use them to pave the riverbed with gold. Now, I think we have a lot to learn from these wonderful men and women of faith who took spiritual discipline seriously. A lot to learn in the 21st century, don't we, about that. But there's this helpful crib here that Paul gives us about prayer. If we want to have a prayer that perseveres, if we want to let our light shine, the first thing he's saying is we speak to God about people. And he says three things about it. He says, pray with others. In other words, devote yourselves. It's not an individual exercise. Have you got people that you regularly pray with in the week? He says, be watchful. There's a spiritual battle going on. Satan's going to want to keep you in your bed in the morning. And we need to keep alert and awake spiritually. So pray with people who don't just pray for what's going on in the physical realm, but who have eyes to see what's going on in the spiritual realms. And thirdly, be thankful. Notice that, be thankful. In other words, praise fuels prayer. And it protects our hearts from the grip of self-centeredness, which is our default, if you like, as human beings. It combats grumbling. And as Dick Lucas um, says again, a great thing, he says, praise is the best and necessary companion of the prayer that perseveres. Praise is the best and necessary companion of the prayer that perseveres. Now, what does Paul specifically ask them to pray for? Notice where he is. Look at the end of verse 3 with me. I wonder if you notice where he's writing from. Look at this, verse 3. I am in chains. He's in prison. Now, what does he ask them to be devoted in prayer for, pleading in prayer for? Does he ask them to pray for a swift and speedy release from prison, as would probably be very justified? 
No, look at verse 3 with me. He says, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. He doesn't do that. He doesn't ask to be released from prison. Although he does, verse 18 of the end of chapter 4, he does ask them to remember his chains. He's not some superhuman who um, isn't suffering. He says, remember my chains. But his overarching desire is that the message of Christ would ring out loud and clear. And that is why he asks them to pray for this one thing, that God would open the door. That God would open the door. It's pretty ironic, isn't it, when he's behind closed doors. Can being in prison stop the message of Christ going out? Can being housebound or out of work or having a high-pressure job or having many mouths to feed or being chronically ill or being in a hostile environment, or having an unsupportive spouse, can any of that prevent God's message of life and hope and forgiveness from going out? Well, Paul's emphatic answer is no. Do you remember what he said to Timothy at the end of his letter? Again, he's writing from prison. He said these wonderful words. It's a great promise, and would that we believed it. He says, God's word is not chained. He says, remember Jesus Christ, he's telling his son in the faith, Timothy, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Would that we believe that, friends. God's word is not chained. We are so often chained. We're so often bound by crippling anxiety or fear of how we come across or inept fear of being inept. God's word is not chained. And so he prays for these two things. Verse 3, that God may open a door. And verse 4, look at it with me. Verse 4, pray that I may proclaim it clearly. And that it is the mystery of Christ. Verse 3. Do you notice God's role and then our response in that? What does he pray for? God's role is that God would open the door. We're not the ones who open the door and force the conversations. God opens the door. And when he opens the door, what's our response? It's to proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly. Now, we need help to proclaim this mystery. The Apostle Paul needed help. That's why he asked for prayer in help to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And proclamation requires clear communication. People can't guess what the gospel is. Someone's got to tell them. But it's also, do you notice, it's a mystery. And that mystery is something that Paul says in Colossians 1.27 is something that only God can make known. Do you remember? God has chosen to make known, Colossians 1.27, the riches of this mystery. We pray, we proclaim, but God is the one who makes it known. So if you like peas, we pray, we proclaim, and then we have to be prepared. And this is our second heading, if you like, verses 5 to 6. So we've had, how do we let our light shine? The first bit, we speak to God about people. So let's not get out there and start doing lots of things. We get on our knees. That's the first thing. That's the first posture we're to adopt. We get on our knees The second thing is we speak, so we speak to God about people, and the second heading is we speak to people 
about God. Let's look at verse 5 together. How do we let our light shine? Paul says, be wise. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. In other words, he's saying, prayer is the foundation. But how you behave, how you act is really important. The world is watching. The world is watching. Now, I found um, being a Christian in the hockey team at university actually really difficult. Um, the initiations, the drinking games that went on, the, um, the annual Christmas party that we had, the socials, all was part and parcel of being part of the team. And on a couple of occasions, I had to apologize and say sorry to my teammates. I remember once I was joining in. We had a, we had a pub golf event where, you know, as the name suggests, it was pretty lots of rounds. You get tied three-legged to a chap from the hockey team, and you go around several pubs and bars and places. And, you, and I don't think I'd ever, you know, very naive 18-year-old coming from Christian home, I don't think I'd ever been drunk before. And I was absolutely convinced that I was having a fantastic conversation about the Lord with this chap I was attached three-legged to as we were going around the pub. And then I remember once we got into this pub and one of the girls said to me, MJ, what are you doing being drunk? You're a Christian. And I said, I'm not drunk. And I promptly threw up all over the bar for everyone to see. And you know, I had to grovel. I was on my knees. I was broken literally as well. But I had to say, I'm so sorry. I haven't lived up to my faith in Jesus. I profess one thing and I've been living another way. And I remember coming to the training session the following day. We're all pretty feeling pretty rough. And I had to say sorry. But there was a guy on the, in the hockey club who was affectionately known as Ginger Matted Hair Dave. And um, I heard about him. He was a lovely guy who would often escort some of the blokes on the hockey team back to their college rooms um, when they'd had too much to drink and couldn't take themselves back. Uh, he was a teetotaler. He didn't drink. And I wondered if he might be a Christian. And so at the end of one of the matches, I spotted this guy with ginger matted hair, and I thought, that's Dave. So I went up to him, and I sort of introduced myself and saw that he had a What Would Jesus Do bracelet on. And um, I kind of fessed up and told him that I was a Christian too. And we gave each other a secret Christian handshake. And, um, and do you know, Dave won a hearing for the gospel. That um, Christmas, annual Christmas meal that we had, I remember I was sitting opposite some guys who were just putting away lots of, lots of drink and saying it'll be less painful if we do this. And I said, why, why are you doing that? And they said, well, there is a, an annual naked lap of the athletics track that the third men's hockey team have to complete to do. And I thought, I know who's on that, t- who's on the third, it's, that's Ginger Matted Hair Dave's on the, on the third, <laughs> he's going to have to do the naked lap. And I looked down the table and I saw he was there sipping his Coke, having a great time laughing, making loads of jokes. And I thought, what's he going to do? Now, I'm not saying Jesus Christ is asking you to run a naked lap of the athletics track to win a hearing for the gospel. And I didn't witness it myself. But I heard on good, on good record 
that he lapped the rest of them and he picked some of these guys up who drunk themselves silly and carried them across the finishing line on his shoulders and on his back. And he did it. And do you know what? Dave, the next term, organized a big curry evening for all the hockey club. The three girls' teams, the three boys' teams, had them all in, paid for the whole lot, invited a, a Christians in Sports speaker to come in. And everyone came because they liked Ginger Matted Hair Dave. And a guy shared the gospel. And a number of them started coming along to Christianity Explored, where they opened Mark's gospel, looking at the life of the Jesus. These guys. Dave won a hearing for the gospel. How can you win a hearing for the gospel? Let's live our lives in such a way to win a hearing. And let me encourage you, how you quietly live out your life at work or at home, in your family, none of it is wasted if it's done for the Lord. Those little random acts of kindness or speaking well of your colleagues or not lying to your boss or always keeping your word even when it hurts or being above reproach at that office Christmas party, none of that is wasted in God's economy. He sees it all. That's how you win a hearing for the gospel. So we pray. We ask God to open a door graciously. We pray that we'd proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly. And then we're prepared. We live our lives out in such a way that's wise. We make the most of opportunity. Now there's something wonderfully liberating about this passage. Yes, there's a responsibility to proclaim the message of Christ. But only when God opens the door. And yes, we're to make the most of every opportunity, but when it comes our way, so we are prepared. Now, you might be thinking, MJ, I really don't seem to have many opportunities to speak about Christ. They just don't seem to come up. Well, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you prayed for one? When was the last time as a body of believers or as a home group or as a prayer triplet that you actually prayed for the Lord to open a door for one another and that you prayed that you'd make the most of the opportunities given to you. Now, I find it's one of the prayers that the Lord loves to answer. (laughs) It's a dangerous prayer. Please give me an opportunity to speak about you. He loves to answer that prayer. People will ask. God will open doors. You are the light of the world. Are you ready? Are you on your knees? So rather than a mandate, I don't want us to go away and think, oh, I've got to bring Jesus Christ up at the next, um, <laughs> next time at the coffee machine at work. Rather than think that, Paul says, pray. Ask God to open the door. Be wise about how you act. The world is watching Make the most of every opportunity given to you. Respond to his nudges. And I've written down a whole lot here about what it looks like to respond to God's nudges. Very practical ways, but I don't have time to get into it now. If you want to come along and on our Wednesday evenings at Grace's house, we're going to have a great time exploring some of those things together. But ask the Lord to help you to respond to his nudges. And verse 6, Paul presupposes that we are having conversations all the time. Look at verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In other words, 
is not a one-way street, this bringing Jesus Christ up. It's not, it's not like we switch into gospel gear. I know I've got a captive audience here, but this is rare. This is not what life's like. It's a dialogue. There's a conversation. We're, we're to know how to answer everyone. There's questions. There's conversation going on. And do you notice what two qualities this conversation has? Two things. Look at it with me. Verse 6. is to be full of grace. In other words, both gracious and respectful in our tone, but also pointing to the one who is full of grace, Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. It's to be full of grace, but it's also to be have a kick to it. It's to be seasoned with salt. It's got to have a potency and a bite to it. In other words, it's got to be salty to make people thirsty, to want to find out more. We're going to have a week, actually, at Grace's House thinking about salty statements, salty conversations. How can we create thirst, arouse curiosity in people such that we let them take the lead, but we put things out there so that if they're hungry, if they're thirsty to find out more, they want to find out more. So we have to have conversations that are full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we, you may know how to answer everyone. So remember that bedrock? We're to pray. Devote ourselves to prayer. Do it together, not on our own. We're to proclaim the mystery of Christ, which God makes known. We have to have clear communication, and we're to be prepared. We mean, have to know how to answer everyone. And I'm going to finish with uh, this story of a, a friend of mine who's given me permission to share it. I meet together on a Thursday morning with some other mums from our local um, primary school, our boys' primary school. It's a secular school. And we meet to pray for it, for the students, the teachers, the other parents. Um, and one of the parents we felt really prompted to pray for was this uh, lady called Julie, who's got um, very colorful hair, often has it dyed pink or red or purple. She's a, got a big personality. Um, I'd often see her walking her son to school, often <laughs> sort of shouting at him to hurry up and move along as you know, parents often need to. I had no idea what was going on behind the scenes in her life, but we felt prompted by God to pray for her. And so we did. We prayed that God would break into her life, that she would have an angelic visitation. We prayed big prayers that God would move in her life. And a few weeks later, after we'd been praying for her, I saw her at the park. I was in the park with the boys, and she was there with her son. And she was chatting to another mum. And I overheard her speaking to this other mum and saying, you know, I feel like I'm at a crossroads in my life. I'm 38. I don't know if I'm going to make, I have another opportunity for this. I don't want to make the wrong decision. But I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I sort of said, it sounds like you're making a fairly major decision in life. And she said, yeah, I am. And then I said, are you, are you pregnant? And she said, yeah, I am. And it wasn't planned. It's not wanted. And... um it's with my ex-partner. And that relationship's dissolved and not been good. And this other mum was encouraging her to terminate the pregnancy. She said, look, what would the rest of your family say? And, and Julie said, oh, none of my family. They all think if they knew, they would all say, don't go ahead with 
the pregnancy. It's just, you don't need another child on your hands. You've already got two boys. And the other mum said, it's the 21st century. It's your body. You do with it what you want. Still really early on, just terminate it. Don't go through with it. And then this mum turned to me and said, well, you've got three kids. You know what it's like. Tell her how hard it is. I said, yeah, it is pretty hard. It's hard work. But I said, I've just had two miscarriages, and I believe every child is a gift from, I didn't say gift from God, I said is a gift. And whatever rubbish and mess is going on in our life around us, I don't think we should put the blame on that little life inside of us. However messy everything else is around, they're not to blame. Anyway, this other mum kept on encouraging her to think about terminating, and I was praying under my breath that this other mum would leave. (laughs) because I thought she was being toxic to the conversation. And sure enough, she did. She went to see to her child who was needing her. And I said to Julie, I said, Julie, you don't know me, but um, there's a group of us mums who are Christians. I said, I'm married to a vicar, and we've been praying for the school. We pray each week at our house, and we've actually been praying for you. We've been praying that God would break into your life and that you would know that he has a great plan for you and a purpose for you. And that he loves you. And she started welling up. She said, no one's ever spoken to me like that before. And I suddenly remembered the gate, the crisis pregnancy center, which was born out of this church. And this other mom came back and I told her about that. And the Lord opened a door, opened a door into her life. And as a church, church family, we have been able to move her both from a, into temporary accommodation and now into permanent accommodation, which the council's given her. And she has received, she came along to women's brunch at church here a few months ago. And I was just overwhelmed by how the body of Christ is at work. I introduced, I said, this is Ellie. She's got an iron for you. This is Kate, and she's got a microwave for you. This is Grace. She's got some bed linen for you. This is Yan Fen, and she's got a sofa for you. And then she came along to the Easter services, and on the Good Friday service, uh, she came, and we had the drama next door, reenacting the story of of Good Friday and and Easter. And she said to me in the loo, she said, normally I'd be hungover on Good Friday, because it's a bank holiday. This is the first time I've been up and dressed and at church. And as in the reenactment on the Good Friday service, as Jesus was placed in the tomb, and Guy said, if you want to find out what happens next, you've got to come back in a few days' time on Sunday. Her youngest son, Shay, who's five, shouted out, what happens? What happens? I want to know. He'd never heard the story of the good news of Easter. And sure enough, they came back. Now, a washing machine and sofa and beds are not going to save Julie. Only the mystery of Christ. But this is paving a way. This is creating a bridge so that Christ can walk over. And she wanted me to thank you all so much for all your help and support, all your gifts, your prayers. And every time we meet together, I get her to thank God for a few things that's going on. Because inevitably, grumbling will start and things aren't going well. And I say, well, let's start with thanking God for what he's doing. And I say to her when she's feeling weak, I said, don't try and be strong. The world will say, try and be strong. Don't try and be strong, because you're not. I'm not. The only one who's strong is Jesus Christ. and He's our rock, and he's the one you can depend on. 
And just over a week ago, she had that little baby, little baby girl, who's yet still unnamed. And we are praying that that whole family would receive the message of Christ as the bridge of love has been paved over so that Christ would walk in. And her older son, who's 15, said to her after a few weeks when she'd stopped meeting up with me and other Christians and stopped coming to church, he said to her, Mum, you need to get back to church because life is better when you do. That is the difference that Jesus Christ makes. So let's be wise in how we act towards outsiders. Let's do it as a team. Let's pray and dare to ask God to open a door for his message to come through. Let's not do this on our own. We're so much stronger when we do it together. So let's devote ourselves together to prayer. Let's make a point of being watchful and thankful, seeing what's going on in the spiritual realms. Let's pray that we proclaim the gospel, drop Jesus into conversation as he opens it up. And let's have salty conversations that make people thirsty to to know more so that we may know how to answer everyone. Amen.